0: Welcome to Stuff You Missed in History Class from HowStuffWorks.com.
1: Hello and welcome to the podcast. I'm Tracy V. Wilson. And I'm Holly Fry. So the Piltdown Man, one of the world's most uh, infamous instances in scientific fraud. And in August of 2016, which is this year, Researchers published a paper in Royal Society Open Science that concluded that it was the work of a single hoaxer. So rather than rolling that into our Unearthed episodes, which are just around the corner, we are doing an entire Unearthed episode just on this. Uh, we are going to talk about the Piltdown Man, how this hoax played out, and what exactly was Unearthed in this newly published paper that inspired us to do this
0: episode yeah it's something we've gotten lots of requests for over the years yeah and and for me i've sort of had it on the i'll get to that one day maybe list Mm -hmm. And, and now this is a time when i can be proud of my procrastination because it enabled this cool thing to come out
1: well and what what is uh a one of the things that's intriguing to me is that i literally wrote this on the list in august Right, that it has, I have been planning to do this episode right now as of August. And now it seems particularly relevant because it is such a cautionary tale about not just uncritically observing, absorbing things that are announced as news. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the whole time I was working on this outline, I was like, this is, this feels
0: like we just need a reminder. Yeah. <laughs> So to make sense of why the Piltdown hoax even happened in the first place, we actually need to go all the way back to Charles Darwin's publication of On the Origin of Species in 1859. The full title of that particular writing is On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection or The Preservation of Favored Races in the Struggle for Life. And this details Darwin's theories of evolution by natural selection, which are at the foundation of evolutionary biology.
1: When he published this book, Darwin knew that one type of evidence that would really support his theories was in relatively short supply, and that is transitional fossils. These are fossils that have some traits belonging to an older species and some belonging to a more modern species. And transitional fossils are physical evidence of an intermediary evolutionary step that demonstrates how life is changing over
0: time. One famous example of a transitional fossil is Archaeopteryx. It's got some features that are more like a reptile and others that are more like a bird. And today it's viewed as a transitional fossil between non-avian dinosaurs and modern birds.
1: Darwin knew that people would try to discredit his work because at that point in history, not that many transitional fossils had been found. Archaeopteryx, for example, would not even be discovered until eighteen sixty, and a lot of people at that point described it more as the first bird rather than as a transitional fossil. 1860, of course, was after his book had already been published. But Darwin actually anticipated actual these exact source of discoveries. He explained in The Origin of Species that this lack of evidence was probably due to an incomplete geological record and not to an actual absence of the fossils that would prove him right.
0: After Darwin's publication of On the Origin of Species, there was a big focus on finding more transitional fossils. In particular, people were hoping to find the missing link, that single fossil that would conclusively demonstrate a connection between ancient apes and modern humans.
1: Today, we know about lots of transitional fossils that detail the progression of all kinds of life. We have transitional fossils in the evolutionary family trees of birds and fish and whales and horses and elephants and on and on. I literally could just randomly name animals
0: all day. (laughs) That's the 30-minute podcast episode is just Tracy saying animal words.
1: It starts to sound like the list of what they were eating in Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So... (laughs) In terms of human life, the idea of a single missing link between ancient hominids and modern humans has really vanished under the weight of a lot of individual transitional fossils that add up to a human family tree that's full of forks and branches. It is not a single, linear, one-lane road that starts on ape and ends on human connected with one magical, quote, missing link fossil. It's a lot more complicated than that.
0: Yeah. Uh, in 1912, though, the missing link would have been an earth shattering, groundbreaking and career making discovery. And that is what brings us to Piltdown Man. In February
1: of 1912, Sir Arthur Smith Woodward, keeper of geology at the British Museum, now called the Natural History Museum, got a letter from Charles Dawson. In addition to being a solicitor, Dawson was an amateur archaeologist, and he said he had found something very exciting in some gravel beds in Piltdown, Sussex.
0: According to Dawson's account, he had noticed that a road where he lived had been repaired with some odd flints, and he traced the flints to their source, which turned out to be a shallow gravel bed. While talking to the workers there, he learned that they would dug up something they described as, quote, like a coconut and that they'd thrown the pieces away. Dawson dug these fragments out of the trash and found that they were part of a skull. And over the next couple of years, he'd gone back to the pit and found several other pieces of skull and jawbone before finally writing his letter to Smith Woodward. Uh,
1: these skull fragments and jawbone he described looked somewhat human, but not exactly. In his letter, he compared his discovery to a jawbone that had been discovered by a workman in a sand pit near Heidelberg, Germany in 1907, which had been named Homo Heidelbergensis in 1908. Homo Heidelbergensis had some features in common with Homo erectus and others in common with modern humans or Homo sapiens. Dawson said his discovery would, quote, rival H. Heidelbergensis in solidity.
0: Dawson and Smith Woodward kept quiet about this find at first, as they did some more digging at the pit. And then they presented their findings to a packed meeting of the Geological Society of London on December 18th of 1912. They had an ape-like mandible or jawbone. Two of its molars were in place and had significant wear. And then there were pieces of the brain case of a skull, which seemed a lot more human than the mandible did. They had also found some stone tools and fragments of other non-human mammal fossils. Their coloring was comparable to that of the gravel bed, and the conclusion was that these fossils were at least 500,000 years old.
1: Regarding their presentation, A.C. Haddon, writing in the journal Science, said, quote, Mr. Dawson gave an account of the finding of the specimens, the nature and and geographical and geological position of the gravel bed. And Dr. Smith Woodward described the remains in a most excellent manner.
0: Haddon went on to write, quote, There can be no doubt that this is a discovery of the greatest importance and will give rise to much discussion it is the nearest approach we have yet reached to a missing link. Probably few will deny that Eoanthropus Dawsoni is almost, if not quite as much human as Simeon.
1: I'm just going to say we are guessing on how that is pronounced because it seems like no one knows. (laughs) (laughs) So Eoanthropus Dawsoni is what they named their find. And that means Dawson's Dawn Man, which is not, self-congratulatory at all. I mean, I know often scientific names of things are named after the person who found or discovered or put them in a taxonomy or whatever, but like Dawson's Dawn Man just
0: seems particularly back patty. Yeah. Uh, in 1913 and 1914, excavations continued at the gravel pit where these first fossils had reportedly been recovered. And these excavations unearthed some other evidence as well. There was a canine tooth, which had some features in common with ape teeth and others in common with modern human teeth. They also found a carved slab of bone that became known as the cricket bat because it was roughly shaped like one.
1: Although Dawson did keep excavating, or at least saying he was excavating, the start of World War I meant that it took place on a much smaller scale. He sent a couple of postcards to Smith Woodward saying that he had found some other fossils and other sites not far away from that first find. But otherwise, this was really the end of the discoveries at Piltdown. And then Dawson died in 1916.
0: A lot of scientists were very excited about the Piltdown discoveries, understandably. Not only were they put forth as the missing link that was so important to evolutionary science at the time, but they had also been found in Britain, which meant that the British Isles had played an important part in the evolution of all of humanity. The British Empire was at this point the largest empire in human history, controlling almost one quarter of all of the land on Earth. So the idea that Britain had also been a keystone in human evolution carried this mix of pride and of well, t- obviously,
1: yes, people were quite ready to believe that Britain was actually the birthplace of the human, uh, the human species. So. Although, it was not universally accepted. The Piltdown Man played a major role in scientific thought about human evolution for about the next 40 years. More than 250 papers and monographs were published about it, and it was cited in more than 70 publications. So it was a pretty big deal, and it was also completely made up, which we're going to talk about after a sponsor break. So after this announcement, many in the scientific community just took Dawson and Smith Woodward's report to the Geological Society of London at face value. The original pieces of these specimens were locked away in storage for safekeeping, but casts of them were made to share with researchers who wanted to do further study.
0: A lot of the early scientific debate about these specimens didn't even consider the basic question of whether they were authentic at all. Instead, it was about things like whether Smith Woodward's interpretation of the skull was correct. He had made a reconstruction of the skull based on nine fragments that had initially been found. The resulting skull had a capacity of about 1,076 cubic centimeters.
1: Two other anatomists and anthropologists disagreed about whether Smith Woodward's reconstruction was accurate. Sir Arthur Keith of Scotland was on one side of this debate, and Sir Grafton Elliot Smith of Australia was on the other. Keith made his own reconstruction, which had a capacity of about 1,500 cubic centimeters, or about the same as a modern human skull, which prompted Smith Woodward to revise his original reconstruction. Smith, on the other hand, came to different conclusions, insisting that the original 1076 cubic centimeters was a lot more correct. These all had to do with basically how the skull pieces were lined up and what parts of the skull bones people thought they were from. Like, you think of your skull
0: as one solid piece, but it's actually several pieces connected by sutures. So the question was whether these nine fragments of skull were being correctly used to make a reconstruction. Not whether they were actually from a prehistoric human. There was also a lot of talk about whether the canine tooth that was found later was really part of the same mandible or not. But there was no talk about whether any of these pieces were actually genuine. Basically... A big chunk of the scientific
1: literature surrounding the spine just was credulous and uncritical from the start. And to be fair, many of the technologies that we use to authenticate the age of fossils today were not invented yet. And they would not be for more than 20 years. And also, a lot of the other fossil evidence today that we know about that shows that hominids developed more human-like jaws before they developed bigger brain cases... Those had not been discovered yet either, so they didn't really have things to compare them to.
0: But even so, a lot of people studying this find simply took for granted from the beginning that it was legitimate, and they framed their study from there. Like the quote popularized by Carl Sagan, extraordinary claims like, I found the missing link in a gravel pit in Piltdown, require extraordinary evidence. And that just was not present here.
1: This uncritical acceptance that the Piltdown Man was real was certainly not completely universal, especially as time passed and people had more opportunities to study it. For example, American zoologist Garrett Smith Miller published, quote, The Jaw of the Piltdown Man in Smithsonian Miscellaneous Collections in 1915, in which he concluded that the skull fragments did come from a real human skull, but that the mandible came from an extinct species of chimpanzee. Writing in American Anthropologist, William K. Gregory later published an analysis of the molars, which concluded, quote, I believe that Mr. Miller is fully justified in holding that the lower molars of the piltdown jaw are those of a chimpanzee and not of an extinct genus of hominidae.
0: As more analysis emerged, there were also people who not only questioned whether this work was, quote, scientifically justifiable, but, but also warned that all this buzz and heightened expectations were dangerous. George Grant McGurdy had published a fairly credulous overview of the Piltdown findings in 1914, but by 1916 he had not only revised his own opinions, but was also alarmed at the state of scientific inquiry around the Piltdown man.
1: In the journal Science, McGurdy outlined a range of doubts, criticisms, and skeptical inquiries that had come in from the United States, Britain, France, and Italy, among other places, and he included this warning, quote, has not this dazzling combination blinded the discoverers and indirectly some of their colleagues, even at a distance, because of the high pitch of expectancy to which recent discoveries in the prehistoric field have, not without reason, contributed? Under the circumstances, such blindness, if only temporary, would be pardonable and comparatively harmless, but serious danger lurks in the possibility of its persisting long enough to become an obsession and and a hindrance
0: to future progress in this particular field. And that's exactly what was happening. In spite of the growing body of skepticism and criticism, the Piltdown Man became a widely accepted part of a body of scientific literature.
1: Things started to unravel a little about a decade after the Piltdown discovery. First, in 1926, it was discovered that these gravel beds where the fossils were found were not old enough to contain 500,000-year-old fossils.
0: Whoops. (laughs) Uh, Then, starting in the 1930s, paleontologists started finding other hominid fossils in other parts of the world. And they seemed to suggest an evolution of human life that was taking place primarily in Africa and Asia. And as we noted earlier, that the jaws were becoming more human-like before the brain cases and not the other way around. It made less and less sense that some critical moment in human evolution had happened on some tiny islands off the northwest coast of Europe, following a totally different pattern from what was being discovered elsewhere. But even so, a sizable chunk of the scientific community carried on believing that the Piltdown specimens were genuine. A number of chemical
1: and isotopic dating methods started to be developed in the 1940s. And in 1953, Kenneth Oakley, then head of anthropology at the British Museum, analyzed the Piltdown Man's skull fragments through fluorine dating. And the fragments were definitely much newer than Dawson and Smith Woodward had said, and they were way, way too new to be the missing link. The first test suggested that it was only 50,000 years old, not 10 times that. Following Oakley's discovery, the British Museum publicly announced that the Piltdown man was a fraud.
0: And these fluorine tests definitely were not perfect. Uh, They showed that all the skull pieces were the same age, whereas later analysis would show that in fact they were not. And later on, more refined dating methods would also determine that the pieces were only about 600 years old, certainly not 50,000. But in spite of those shortcomings, they were definite proof that the Piltdown Man was not a real hominid fossil.
1: Yeah, yeah. as our ability to test things got better over time, because we learned, so did our ability to point out just how fake these things really were. Further analysis showed that the mandible was really from a juvenile orangutan. And that all these pieces that had uh, been purported to be a, a person's remains were actually meticulously altered to look genuine. They had been stained to match the material in the gravel beds, but the stains were not made of substances that were local to the area. The molars had also been artificially worn down to look natural, and then other mammal fossils that were found in the same area were actual genuine fossils, but they were not from species that actually lived in Piltdown. So this was not a case of somebody accidentally finding some human bones near an orangutan bone for some reason and then drawing a logical but incorrect conclusion. It was a deliberate hoax.
0: The good news was, with the Piltdown Man out of the way, all of the other fossil evidence that had been discovered in Africa and Asia in the decades since then... Made a lot more sense. There was no longer any lingering question of, well, if humanity's origins are in this part of the world and evolving this way, traveling in this pattern, what is this other fossil doing way over here following a completely different model?
1: This was incredibly important in terms of the study of human evolution. The Piltdown Man had become such a dominant presence in the field that people were using its existence to totally disregard legitimate fossil findings that strongly suggested human origins in Africa. One of the foundations of scientific progress is the ability to reassess your conclusions when you're faced with new compelling evidence. But the Piltdown Man was such a juggernaut that people were disregarding that new evidence instead. This was probably complicated by a conscious or unconscious reluctance among at least some scientists to believe that modern
0: humanity rose in Africa, not in Britain. But the bad news was that a lot of the world had fallen for this hoax. It had impeded progress and perpetuated inaccurate information for decades. On top of that, the revelation that it wasn't real eroded the general public's belief in science. In the words of Ernest A. Houghton of Harvard, writing in American Anthropologist in 1954, quote, What really worries me is the revelation to a laity that is often hostile to biological science of calculated dishonesty on the part of someone intimately concerned with a discovery of supposedly great importance to the history of man. It is as shocking as the proof that men in high places of our own government have betrayed their country. Already the press is flooded with accusations by anti-evolutionists that all of the other evidence of man's origin from an ape-like ancestry has been deliberately faked by unscrupulous scientists. The fact that the Piltdown fraud is possibly and even probably unique will be very difficult for the public to accept.
1: Before you get too attached to the wise words of Ernest A. Houghton here. (laughs) I mean, they really touched me. I feel like they are applicable even still today. Uh, He also did a lot of work combining race and criminology that was influenced by the eugenics movement. And a lot of that work was pretty definitely racist. So as much as I love these words (laughs) that he has to say about how damaging it was for this to be revealed as a fraud... There are other factors of his work, so this is not a, uh, an endorsement of him as a scientist by us as podcasters who are not scientists.
0: Uh, yeah, we can appreciate his insight in that moment without applauding the rest of his body of work for sure. Uh, and with this finding now unquestionably shown to be fraudulent, the focus then turned to piecing together who had done it and why. And we're going to talk about that after we first pause for a word from one of our sponsors.
1: In the years after the Piltdown Man was shown to be a hoax, many, many theories were put forth about the potential culprits.
0: A lot of the attention has been on Dawson himself. After all, he was the one who reported the findings in the first place, and he was instrumental in the announcement and the initial investigations. He may have hoped that such a profound discovery would earn him admission into the Royal Society. A
1: couple of people who either knew or worked with Dawson were citing, cited as possibilities as well, including Samuel Woodhead and Pierre Telliard de Chardin. The latter was the one who actually uh, found that canine tooth.
0: Even though he played such a huge role, most people did not suspect Sir Arthur Smith Woodward, believing him to have been an unwilling dupe, or one of the intended targets, since his reputation would have been ruined if word had gotten out while he was still alive. Sir Arthur Keith, whose paper on the skull reconstruction we talked about earlier, was also suggested as a suspect.
1: One of the most famous suspects, at least outside of the world of scientists, was Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who knew Dawson, had an interest in this type of thing, and lived nearby.
0: In 19- That's a weird
1: set of criteria to say somebody <laughs> is a suspect. I mean, there were like apparently there were people who were like he just wants to destroy the evolutionists.
0: Right. That's some seriously circumstantial stuff that's getting pieced together. Yeah. Flimsy circumstantial stuff. Uh In 1966, a trunk found in storage in the British Museum was discovered to contain a number of bones, including some that had been stained in a similar manner to the Piltdown Man. This trunk, marked with the, the initials M-A-C-H, apparently belonged to Martin A.C. Hinton, who also amassed quite a collection of other bones, fossils, and specimens. He had been working as a volunteer at the museum in 1912, and he became its keeper of zoology in 1936. So naturally, this uh, brought up lots of
1: theories about what was going on with what was in this trunk. One of the theories was that these bones were Hinton's trial run, and that he had done this and then planted the fossils, in quotation marks, to get revenge on Smith Woodward, who had turned him down when he tried to move his volunteer position back in 1912 into a paid one. However, not all of this quite adds up. I had a hard time pending down exactly why this was later uh debunked as being uh who had orchestrated this, but his time at the museum started after the first discovery at Piltdown. And he also had... Uh, expressed some skepticism at that find being authentic. So another school of thought is that the way these stained bones that looked very similar to the Piltdown specimens came to be in his suitcase is that he was trying to replicate the coloring at Piltdown to prove
0: that it was a fraud. The paper published in Royal Society Open Science this year is an attempt to conclusively solve this whole puzzle once and for all. The study involved DNA analysis, dating analysis, spectroscopy, and high-precision measurements of the specimens, as well as studying three-dimensional representations of them, which is known as virtual anthropology.
1: The DNA analysis confirmed that teeth in the mandible were from an orangutan, probably one born in Borneo, and that all of the orangutan specimens that were part of this hoax probably came from the same individual animal, Attempts to figure out whether there are any missing orangutan specimens in local museum collections have so far been unsuccessful, but it's also possible that somebody could have bought an orangutan skull in an antiquarian shop.
0: A minimum of two, possibly three different human skulls were used in the production of the skull fragments. And while tests to figure out whether they were all the same age were inconclusive, they were all subjected to the same M.O. to make them look like fossils that could have come from that gravel bed. And there was dental putty used
1: to hold the teeth in place in the mandible and to hold the gravel and pebble plugs in place Uh, with these materials being similar to the sediment that was at the Piltdown dig site, that this discovery of dental putty was not new to this research that was just published. Like people knew about the dental putty way before, which like continues to make me question why in 1912 nobody was like, this looks glued on, (laughs) right? I mean, maybe it was just some really, really skillful dental putty use, but I, I, I don't know. <laughs> uh, that's one of the many things that makes me go, how ready were you all to believe that the Missing Link was from Britain? Because that's the only way all this works.
0: And I think the answer is very ready. Extremely uh, ready. The team concludes that given the consistencies in the MO and the limited number of total specimens, the Piltdown Man was probably the work of one forger, most likely Charles Dawson, possibly trying to further his own scientific career, which given that he died in 1916 at the age of 52, just four years after the first announcement, clearly did not quite work out for him.
1: I had a whole conversation about this episode with, with my husband in the car over the weekend, uh, about how Like, you know, a lot of these different people have been put forth as potential suspects, and a lot of them are are sort of dismissed. And really, all of these things are really circumstantial. Like, there's just, there's, even with all of this analysis, there's still a lot of circumstantial evidence and guesswork and stuff like that. But to me, the biggest strike against Charles Dawson is the fact that he did die only four years after this whole thing started. So... Any like many of these other people who have been pointed out as suspects lived for a whole lot longer and and that sort of raises the question of okay what were they after that never came to fruition right Where, like Charles Dawson's relatively early death makes it seem like whatever he was after he didn't get and then he was never he wasn't around to either further perpetuate it or be like, you know what I made that up like right. That's, it's yet another piece of circumstantial evidence, uh, uh, in, in the Charles Dawson column. So all of that though may raise the question of why spend so much time and effort just trying to get the bottom of who did this. And so in the words of the paper's authors, quote, solving the Piltdown hoax is still important now. It stands as a cautionary tale to scientists not to see what they want to see, but to remain objective and to sub- and to subject even their own findings to the strongest scientific scrutiny. That's a Piltdown man.
0: I love that episode. Thank you, Tracy.
1: Oh you're very welcome. I, I'm I'm gonna totally admit I had a very good time <laughs> reading the vastly incorrect papers. Published in the early 19 teens <laughs> about this finding from people who were flat out wrong. And at the same time, I was really mad about it. <laughs> like, <laughs> uh, we, I have often, when we've done episodes about old medical history or something like that, read, you know, the, the old papers from the time that have, that were published and these, you know, people very confidently espousing stuff that's wrong just really wrong. And the it makes me a lot madder this time because it was wrong and somebody did it on purpose and it stood in the way of scientific progress for decades.
0: Makes me real mad. Yeah, We, uh, you and I talked about uh, off mic, the fact that 40 years is a really long time when you consider like that is the length of a career for a scientist in some cases. Mm-hmm. And so there were probably people who were not willingly even... Party to this sort of blindness, but were proceeding along on a career path that was basically complete blunder, and they wasted their time and their scientific minds. And,
1: yeah, and wasted the greater whole of humanity's ability to learn more about where we came from. Yeah. Uh, and then it's by total coincidence that between the day when I wrote this on the calendar... However many m- months ago and now like now there is such a renewed focus on like the uh the putting out there of just fake wrong information that is demonstrably wrong and it being accepted as fact. <laughs> yeah.
0: Ah, oh, do you have listener mail? I do. And it's also about science. It
1: is from Sarah. Here's what she says. Sarah says, Dear Holly and Tracy, long time listener, first time caller. I love your podcast, but yesterday was downright spooky. I'm a graduate student at the University of Washington and I was in my dungeon. I mean, sub basement lab, happily listening to my backlog podcasts when your podcast about the orphan tsunami began. The reason this is spooky is that I was collecting data about a landslide I think was triggered by the 1700 earthquake. Right. Right now, I am doing a grain size analysis of my slide and comparing it to the devastating landslide in 2014 that killed 50 people. I have a, I have attached some pictures of my sieves and oven and the field work backhoe and my mentor, where samples were collected. I continued with my work, which involved running some errands. Well, lo and behold, just as I'm getting into the car to take my radiocarbon samples to the lab, you talk about radiocarbon dating. I would like to respectfully request that you lovely ladies please remove the cameras you have following me around. This connection between landslides and earthquakes makes sense when you think about it the shaking caused by an earthquake can destabilize otherwise safe slopes. High topography can also amp amplify an earthquake's waves, creating an even stronger shaking. The 1994 northridge Ridge earthquake is 6.7 on the moment magnitude we don't use Richter anymore caused an estimated 50,000 uh it says earthquakes, but I think it might mean landslides here in the Pacific Northwest, Uh, We are especially landslide prone. Glaciers occupied the area until very recently geologically and glaciers tend to leave very steep slopes because of the immense weight and pressure inherent in a mile thick layer of ice. The glaciers in Puget Sound especially contribute to our risk and because of the large amount of loose sediment deposited, combining loose glacial sediment over steepened slopes and earthquakes could be a recipe for disaster. You also mentioned in the episode The silt deposits and tide flats that helped us identify the tsunami events. This summer, I had the good fortune to get to examine some of these deposits with one of the main authorities. I believe he wrote the book you mentioned in the podcast. Even with a group of 20 trained geologists, when we cut into the tide flat deposits, the tiny silt deposits were hard to see. I've attached a picture. Then she describes what's in the picture. These deposits are only centimeters thick in some places and not well distributed. Digging a hole a meter away from the original had very different thicknesses and layering. The silt, which comes from a few kilometers out to sea, is carried in suspension by the tsunami wave and deposited inland as the wave loses energy. The tide flats are a great place to look for this deposit because they are well preserved. Storms can create similar deposits as well. I understand if you can distinguish storms from tsunamis because storm deposits are thicker because storms tend to last days, whereas tsunamis tend to last hours don't quote me on that which i just did Uh, and then she goes on to write about some uh some territory we've covered in other listener mail about the um the threat of earthquake in seattle and she thanks us and gives us some episode suggestions thank you so much sarah i love when we hear from scientists about our scientific episodes with more science information because that's awesome uh, if you would like to write to us about this or any other podcast, we're at History Podcast at HowStuffWorks.com. We're also on Facebook at Facebook.com slash MystInHistory and on Twitter at MystInHistory. Our Tumblr is MystInHistory.tumblr.com. We're on Pinterest and Instagram at Mist in History. You can come to our parent company's website, which is mistinhistory.com to find all kinds of information about anything your heart desires just about. And then you can come to our website, which is MissedInHistory.com, where uh, we will put, for example, the link to the original paper that was published that inspired this episode. So you can do all that and a whole lot more at HowStuffWorks.com or MissedInHistory.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com.